0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now what do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about the ceasefire in the Israel-Palestine conflict, the vast potential for Indonesia, and a general overview of the global geopolitical arena. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news so we'll start the episode off by talking about the chief of the election committee in Myanmar uh, is currently considering the dissolution of Aung San Suu Kyi's party um, the National League for Democracy Uh, it is important to know I believe it's important to know that this election committee was created by the military, who is currently in charge of the country at the moment. So there's that M- little development in the Myanmar coup, otherwise known as Burma. I've taken to calling the Myanmar for today, but we'll move on. Uh, we have more cybersecurity breaches and critical U.S. infrastructure, uh, chief amongst them that I gathered in my uh, well in my gathering of the. Day notes for today's episode was a florida water treatment plant that got hacked uh hopefully no one is uh hurt because of this but i'd imagine the the massive breach that happened with the colonial pipeline and them paying the ransom to get it back online only to have to still manually reef uh basically manually restart the whole thing because they still didn't get access to the systems Uh, I can only imagine that that didn't exactly set a very good precedent, so now everyone who has the ability, and the spare time I guess, is just like, well I guess we're hacking US infrastructure today, maybe we'll get 5 million, maybe we'll get 75 bitcoin too. Uh, so, maybe we can expect more security breaches on our uh, critical infrastructure, maybe, uh, probably. I hope it doesn't hit here in uh, my state. Ooh, I don't need. I honestly don't need to be dealing with that. I pray for the people who do. Well, not the people who need to, but the people who have to deal with it anyway. Meanwhile, Russia is set to supply S-400s to India later this year as a part of a uh, an agreement they reached. Uh, an S-400 being top of the line. M- m- oh, goodness, top-of-the-line r- Russian military equipment. So if they're going to supply S-400s to India, that leads me to believe that the S-500 is already available for the Russians and it's probably in mass production. Uh, does I don't expect people, particularly the Russians, to sell their best weapons to other countries or sell weapons that they actually are their best because it is perceived that the s-400s are the best that they have but i this leads me to believe they have s-500s and they probably even have s-600s just sitting there uh, that we don't even know about that'd be the safe bet if you're russia you know how do you know the indians won't use this against you how do you know That if they were to, quote-unquote, lose one of these, it doesn't fall in the hands of someone who doesn't like you. Mm -hmm. So, I'd imagine the Russians have the fail-safe that is delayed uh, deployment of new equipment. That's my guess. I could be wrong. But... I think I'm right. I I think they have those S-600s just chilling out in Siberia waiting for some stupid boil to fly over their airspace. but regardless, uh, we have while we're still technically in the region of well, Eurasia, we're, we have China and Pakistani Chinese and Pakistani diplomats meeting to deepen the ties of their bilateral relationship, um, most likely in the form of more infrastructure projects and trade as Pakistan is a key signatory key signatory, if I could speak today, a key signatory of the Belt and Road Initiative, and is kind of the gateway for China into the rest of Eurasia, namely into the Middle East, as it is through bits of either Afghanistan or Pakistan that China's even going to be able to reach Iran, who they've reached that massive deal for. Um, we talked about that a couple weeks back, how Iran has become a signatory of the Belt and Road in all but name, I believe, or whether whether it's official or not, I am now blanking on, but I know that they signed on to a massive trade deal and a massive deal for infrastructure investment, which basically means the Belt and Road, if we're being honest with ourselves. And I talked about how that will enable the Chinese to tap Iranian oil and will basically make... Iran, independent from U.S. sanctions, particularly sanctions on Iranian oil, because they'll just sell it straight into the Chinese market, and they'll be able to do that with a direct rail link into China. So, all the all the hubbub and movement within the Chinese financial sector about some the digital yuan and all that, in their own digital currency, uh, the Belt and Road is probably going to help facilitate for direct and unhampered trade between China and the Belt and Road members. So, we could be seeing something like that in the future. I definitely know the Iranians uh, and the Chinese are going to be trading that oil in exchange for that cash. So there's that, and the the fact that China is deepening ties with Pakistan is likely to shore up the flanks of the project because the last thing you want is to make all this progress... And then for the country that is closest to your border, that allows you to even reach these uh, regions around the world to get cold feet and suddenly not like you anymore. And decide that, you know what, they don't want your uh, trains to go through their territory. That would be a terrible, terrible worst case scenario for China. Uh, With regards to their ambitions for the Belt and Road. So, it seems here that they are shoring up the flanks by improving relations with Pakistan And we'll we can expect the belt and road to press forward at full steam ahead So I guess that's pretty good for them uh, Probably a horrifying uh, thing to witness if you're India And this probably just another reason on the list of reasons why you would want a uh, top-of-the-line Russian military equipment like uh, say an S-400 mmm I swear this Cold War is so interesting to watch but anyway, uh, while we're still on the topic, uh, yes, while we're still on the topic of Russia, kind of, you know, by proxy, we have Anthony Blinken and Sergey Lavrov, who met in Iceland ahead of the larger summit that is upcoming between Biden and Putin. Now, from what I can tell, uh, Anthony, uh, Sir Blinken, was very, very uh. Not so confrontational with Lavrov, um, which seems kind of odd given the re- confrontational stance the United States has taken uh, since Biden took office, particularly against Russia. But I guess now the alarm bells of a Russo-Chinese de facto alliance um, has reached the upper halls of U.S. foreign policy, and now he's desperately trying to put the brakes on that and secure a neutral russia probably we'll have to see how the meeting between biden and putin actually goes and as a side note i pray that this one uh this diplomatic meeting goes a lot better than the one the us and china had in anchorage a couple months back that was a national humiliation I don't, <laughs> I don't need another national humiliation, Sir Biden. Please, please. Oh, I have low expectations, but I feel like I'm going to be let down anyway. Meanwhile, we have food shortages uh, around the world that are sending yet more shocks to the global supply chain system. Uh, and the global supply chain has been getting uh, ravaged ever since the world decided to go into a mass lockdown mode and we're probably going to see famines probably we'll have to see how a lot of the food producing nations uh, start to reopen uh, the US and Russia are open so that should alleviate quite a bit of the problem probably not all of the problem though uh, there are strikes in India over the farmers well, from by the farmers over new laws, and I'd imagine India is, at the very least, producing the food to feed itself, and that's a, over a billion people to be worried about for the, for the topic of famine, especially in a country with a long history of famines. Uh, China being another country, but the Chinese can are neighbors with the Russians, so I'd imagine they can import food grain stuffs from the russians and then import more tropical type fruits and vegetables from southeast asia and from asean and rcep the massive free trade deals that they've gotten so as far as food is concerned i don't think the chinese have too much to worry about and i'm pretty sure india still good for now you know you always have to keep an eye on india africa though ho ho that may just be a whole different story, a horrifying story, but a different one, and that's before you get to the water wars between Ethiopia and Egypt, but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about that later on as we cover the cover the world. I mean, but on the other hand, we have a new Iranian pipeline that now allows uh, not quite transport For oil from Iran to China, as pipelines take a lot longer than a few months to build, but this pipeline is going to allow Iran to ship its crude to a part of Iran itself that is further east um, and essentially allows it to bypass the Persian Gulf, specifically the Strait of Hormuz. If you look on a map, you see the. If you go over to the Middle East, uh, you can just type in Arabia or Iran. You can see there's a little body of water between Iran and Arabia. And there's a choke point that you have to go through to get out of that body of water. That water being the Persian Gulf, you have to go through this choke point to get out into the wider um, sea, the Arabian Sea. And that choke point is called the Strait of Hormuz. Iran has built this pipeline specifically to bypass that strait. So, And while they won't be able to ship all of their oil, they can ship a significant amount, which is still, geopolitically speaking, rather significant. And is yet another way that we see these land-based powers sort of skirt around the U.S. power structure that has been built into place um, that lasted for these past few decades. And as we're seeing this transition into whatever the new... Uh, excuse me. The, the new normal, geopolitically speaking, is going to be, which is likely to be multipolar rather than unipolar or bipolar. Which is where you'd have a single country in charge of everything, uh, unipolar, or two countries in charge of everything, bipolar. We'll likely to see multipolar, where things are based more on the region rather than the globe. So, yet another uh, chip that has been chipped away from the old power structure that we've come to know, and, well, uh, it's pretty interesting to watch, and even more interesting to speculate on what this new world is going to look like on the other side, because it's not going to look like what we're used to. It's going to look like something our ancestors may have been used to, uh, the wars of imperial predation and great power politics, but... It's new to us, so we get to enjoy the newness of it all. So, I guess we'll go back to China for a minute, and still in the Middle East, China has offered to broker a peace between the combatants in Afghanistan, that being the Taliban and the Afghan government. So, again, we have China stepping in and filling the gap between that has been left by the U.S. Uh, so... Uh, things are shifting, things are really shifting, China's getting assertive, uh, in the places it feels it needs to be, I, I don't expect the Chinese to go walking into Syria, but luckily the Russians are already there, and they're more than happy to let other people deal with the rest of the region, so we really are on the verge of a multipolar world, where you're gonna have all these little interactions with one another, Um uh, interactions between other powers, you know, uh, and it'll be interesting to watch. Now, me, we are, we have Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor. Uh, he recently spoke to the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan, calling for a demarcation of their border. I will say that he is a a little late on this one. Just, just, you know, just a little late. Just a, just a little late. This. This was my first episode. We talked about this in our first episode together. Last year. Isn't that crazy? Wow. First episode. And this guy. What episode is this? 35? This is episode 35. So, 35 weeks later, this guy comes along. Has a chat with the presidents of these two countries who have effectively been occupied by the Russians already. Now, granted, this is a consensual occupation on the part of both Azerbaijan and Armenia, but an occupation, nonetheless, the Russians have already settled the issue. So, I don't see what he seeks to accomplish in doing this. Maybe to deny Russian influence over a part of the world the Russians already had outsized influence over. I don't know. But he's a bit late on this one. Uh, I I don't know what my government seeks to achieve. I think I think my my country is confused, very confused, at a critical moment in history. My hope is that it leads us to uh, looking inwards and maybe another period of isolationism. Maybe I'll still get it even with the Biden administration. Uh, fingers crossed. But we have. In another part of the world, we brought up, more people are fleeing to the jungles in Burma as the military secures control over the countryside. Uh, So we have lots of rumblings in Burma. Uh, We'll see if it spills out into, you know, tensions between them and their neighbors. But for the time being, it seems like most people are content to leave Burma alone and just watch what goes down there, myself included. All this is happening while the U.S. Oh no, that's not the U.S. at all. Me, all this is happening while China and Russia are set to collaborate on the construction of new nuclear reactors, which are to be built in China. Uh, Russia hosting lots of the key technologies for doing that, and China having the demand for the energy. So we see China diversifying its energy supply um, away from coal and oil. For now, I'd imagine it's really just gonna be, will it even be away from coal, really? I'd imagine later on it'll be away from coal, but I think the Chinese just have a massive growth in energy demand, and this is more so to meet that, Uh, otherwise they wouldn't be building still new coal power plants, and they probably won't feel the need to import oil from Iran, and probably even tap the wider Middle East at some point in the future. Iran is right there, and the Middle East loves its pipelines, so. I think China's just expanding its energy supply uh, and diversifying it, being a a nice little addition to the expanded supply, Uh, and it's nice, it's interesting to see, Uh, probably scaring my American foreign policy experts. Who are concerned about a Russo-Chinese alliance and this is not letting them sleep at night I'd imagine. Uh, speaking of the US, uh, a US destroyer sailed through the Strait of Taiwan, um, meanwhile the UK backed down from sending a destroyer into the Black Sea, instead choosing to send a patrol boat. So that's the current state of the Western military powers. Uh, if you don't consider the russians western i would technically cuz you know mo- more than half their population lives in the european side of russia but they are a eurasian power so eurasian asiatic uh, they they exist in a weird place in the globe so we'll just refer to them as the russian <laughs> all right but that is the rapid fire news and in just a moment, we'll get into the meat. Alright, we're getting it into the meat now. And we'll start with an update to the Israel-Palestine War. Well, the latest fighting in that war. And we'll start with the a few words from the Ayatollah of Iran. So Ayatollah al-Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, has made a call for Muslim states to back Palestinians. He goes on to say, quote, Muslim states must sincerely support the Palestinian people, end quote. Now, he specifically emphasized doing this through military, financial, and physical physical reconstructive means, such as aiding in the rebuilding of infrastructure uh, in Palestine, that would be damaged as a result of the fighting and of the people who've responded to this call egypt has pledged 500 million to help rebuild the gaza strip and is currently sending medical aid to palestine uh now is is israel egypt is not the only country to answer this call as jordan or at least operators within jordan have sent drones over the border into Israel. Uh, Israel has shot down a lot of drones that have been coming from Jordan, which is the next-door neighbor, straight east from Israel and Palestine. So Jordan and Egypt are in. Iran is obviously in. Uh, Meanwhile, Benjamin Netanyahu's prime minister... uh, Oh, he's... Goodness. Benjamin Netanyahu... Israel's Prime Minister, there we go, has allowed for a ceasefire with Hamas, uh, who were the fighters in the Gaza Strip, and he's allowed this ceasefire. Uh, Now Hamas had actually been calling for a ceasefire days prior to this, which the Israelis refused to oblige. Um, Likely because they wanted to carry out military operations that they'd already set into motion, And probably to deny Hamas the ability to regroup after the damage had already been done. Um, Because they fired those rockets, uh, they got a a Hellfire missile thrown back at them, and then there was calls for a ceasefire. Uh, So obviously, the Israelis, who at that point were on the counter-offensive, didn't want the ceasefire. They wanted to do their bit of damage first, and then have the ceasefire so that... It basically wasn't just a hit-and-run, geo- a geopolitical hit-and-run, where the Hamas fighters get off scot-free and Israel is hurt. So it's a tit-for-tat. That's what I believe the reasoning behind this is. Um, a mutually assured destruction. Uh, not to the degree of killing each other, but to the degree of killing people. Um, speaking of uh, killing people... As of now, over 4,000 rockets had been fired from Gaza into Israel. And that in addition to the rockets that were fired from Lebanon and Syria into Israel. Although those were much fewer in number. So, a lot of rockets. And over 200 people lay dead in this conflict total. So that's both sides. And 15,000 wounded. Now again, these are what we can confirm, uh, or the best guess, I should say, because I'd imagine people still under the rubble of collapsed buildings probably aren't accounted for. So, a tragic incident, really, all these people who are hurt and dead. And we can only imagine what the death toll would be if the Iron Dome hadn't intercepted so many of those rockets. Again, I brought this up in the last episode where people were talking about a disproportionate response and Israel having an overreaction to these measly rockets that were fired at them. And I brought up that had those rockets, a lot of them not been intercepted by the Iron Dome, we'd be having very different conversations about who did and didn't overreact. So, and that was something I had seen most people kind of overlook, uh, the people who were critical of the conflict itself, namely. Uh, so, and I guess it's sort of a me stepping out into my own, I should say. But more importantly, uh, this is a big mess, uh, and it's sparked animosity, deep animosity overseas where we have groups of people uh extreme pro-palestinian activists who have actually went out through their neighborhoods uh looking for jews to beat and kill so that's not exactly something you like to see and it's kind of strange to think about in this modern day where we like to believe that we've put things like that behind us. And then all of a sudden, it's just right back, right back at the forefront. Now, granted, not everyone who's pro-Palestinian is going to do this, because people who are pro-Palestine aren't monsters. But it is sort of dangerous, dangerously curious, too, but dangerous that we see things like this. And really makes you wonder what would happen in the future, if something like a war between major powers were to break out um, what type of I, I, my, my main interest would be the propaganda I the propaganda uh, that World War Two propaganda is something else but um, yeah it's kind of like a kind of a window into a dangerous time and dangerous times we could be entering into in this era of multipolar great power competitions. Uh you don't exactly like the people who you're competing with over strategic resources and land and well wealth and the ability to survive. Especially when that competition includes military dynamics. So we'll 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 see how things like this go on particularly when we take a look at the broader Middle East, like we did in last episode, uh, people in Kuwait uh, have also responded somewhat to the call to help Palestine, as they've gone as far as to burn the Israeli flag and reject any normalization to relations uh, with Israel. And that rejection means more than it would have uh, before because of the wave of normalizations we saw in the latter months of the Trump years in office where we had the Abraham Accords and all these Muslim nations were normalizing relations with Israel. So this rejection of the possibility of normalizing relations suddenly has more weight to it. Now maybe they just weren't going to anyway and this is a convenient excuse to justify not being pressured into normalizing relations with Israel but still has more weight to it now than it would have maybe a couple years ago um so yeah that's kind of where we are and I guess we can with a, uh, yeah I guess with the Israel-Palestine war sort of eating up the news cycle and the attention span of every, damn near every news entity that I can get my grubby hands on I figured it would be a good opportunity to kind of step back and look at the broader geopolitical picture uh, around the world and I guess we may as well start with the Middle East uh, as we've talked about before a number of times as we've brought up Iran's sphere of influence it's expanding sphere of influence I should say and it's strengthening sphere of influence We talked about how the Middle East could be seeing a new regional order where you have Iran on one side and its sphere of influence and its allies, because we brought up how Syria is in essence an ally of Iran right now. They did these strikes on Israel that they didn't need to in response to Israeli strikes on Iran. And that was what tip my hat off. That's that's what tipped the alarm for me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they're, they're allies, aren't they? And then when you sort of take a step back and you look at all these conflicts, these smaller conflicts going on in the Middle East, obviously there's the Syrian civil war, which is coming to a close. And I brought up how Iran put themselves on, they've managed to put themselves on the winning side of all these conflicts. They backed the winner ...in all of these conflicts. They backed the Assad government in Syria. Uh, Assad is winning. They backed the Houthis in Yemen. The Yemenis have the Saudi Arabians in retreat. They backed the Houthis. The Houthis are winning, seemingly, even in spite of Saudi Arabian intervention. So the Houthis, you have the Syrian government. You have multiple factions in Palestine, I'd imagine. Um, th- that conflict remains to be seen, but given that Palestine hasn't been wiped off the map yet, I'd say it's still fair game. Uh, they've, they're they backing elements in Lebanon, too. That's more of a loose affiliation, because uh, Lebanon is sort of on the fringes of their sphere of influence. The same with the Houthis. So those are more indirect than they are direct and sort of material support rather than dipl- uh, super diplomatic relations. But that could change, you know? Iran has been is still in the early phases of this new sphere of influence. Um, we could see a lot more come in the future. And you even have neutral Qatar who's acting as this mediator of peace deals. But uh, this mediator of... Powers acting in the Middle East in general. They have... This tiny country has made themselves important by taking up this role. And I think that's a pretty important role to have if you're going to talk about a regional balance of power. You need somebody that everyone else is willing to talk to so that you can get everyone to talk to each other when they really don't want to talk to each other. Qatar has made themselves important. They mediated that uh, situation between... I ran in South Korea when Iranian uh, vessels basically detained uh, a South Korean oil tanker. And it was Qatar, or Qatar. I'm going to call them Qatar. It was them who mediated and dealt with that situation and de-escalated things. So they are the pressure valve of whatever this new order in the Middle East is going to be. You have Russia there. Uh, On the fringes. Who are backing the Syrians. Um, But Russia's largely keeping to themselves. Content with their gains in the Caucasus. And really just assisting allies. In whatever their ally needs at this point. And China doesn't want anything to do with the Middle East. Other than the energy. But they're going to get that from Iran. And the rest they can source from Russia. So... Really, it'll just be a matter of, does the Middle East want to get its energy out through means other than the water? To which, they'll join on the Belt and Road. But we're seeing this shift where the regional players in the Middle East are suddenly having way more sway over the things that happen in the Middle East. And again, Iran is coming out on top. Because the big boys are leaving, the U.S. is withdrawing. Withdrawing from Afghanistan, I- Afghanistan is torn, um, and it's probably going to end with the Taliban taking control of the government. And we'll have to see how Iran's relationship is with the Taliban, which I would argue is going to be a bit more important to them, given that Afghanistan is a direct neighbor, rather than an inder- rather than a a neighbor within the neighborhood. It is a straight up hard border neighbor, Afghanistan. But I'd imagine they'll probably look to have good relations with the Taliban, um, despite the ideological difference, it's Sunni versus Muslim. Or, or is the Taliban Muslim, uh, Sunni Muslim? I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up. Actually, I can cheat by pausing the recording. Alright, cheating done. So apparently they're Sunni. <laughs> and interestingly enough, they refer to themselves as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. There's a little fun fact that I gathered while cheating. But yeah, we have... I'd imagine that despite this, you're going to have Iran seek at least neutral relations with the Taliban. Um, But we see Iran sort of coming out on top as the regional hegemon here. uh, Especially now that they've been given that lifeline by China that they're probably going to use to dump their oil onto the Chinese market. Now that they don't need to go through... The Strait of Hormuz, and that was just that on top of this pipeline that they built for themselves. Iran, after a long struggle, is coming out on top. And Israel is on the back foot. Saudi Arabia is normalizing, or at least attempting to re-normalize relations with Iran, of all countries. Uh, And that was after they decided that they were going to start trying to mend relations with Syria. Again, this is Assad's government in Syria. so they're in retreat, Arabia is in retreat from Yemen. they're normalizing and relations with Syria and they're trying to have a dialogue with Iran. They have been defeated comprehensively within their region, and it is them who have been contained we this strategic policy from the US and a lot of its key allies in this region was to try to contain Iran and uh, keep Syria down and contain the influence of Russia but now we see that the reverse has happened where it is Arabia who has gotten contained and now Israel is getting bogged down in Israel They're tied up in conflict uh, with the Palestinians right now they can't go out and intervene in other people's business If they have rebels to deal with in their own territory, who are then being backed up by outside powers like Iran and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt, Egypt has even stepped in, uh, reasserting themselves as a part of the Middle East, and they've effectively become a part of the new balance of power too, and... The Iranians, by establishing themselves uh, in an unofficial manner, but I'd imagine it will be official soon enough, as the dominant power in the region, Egypt has thrown their lot in with Iran. And Iran played this card between Israel and Palestine excellently to where they have rallied support, even support from Turkey. Somehow, Shia-Iran has become the champion for Muslims in a Sunni-dominated Muslim region. You can't make this up. Iran is on top in the Middle East. And Israel and Arabia are on the back foot. Arabia is going to be neutral, and Israel is probably going to get bullied for the next decade. That's what I see. They're going to be on the back foot. They're going to be on the defense for the foreseeable future. Especially because the United States is withdrawing, the U- U.S. has yet to really address the conflict in Israel and Palestine, and we have a there's a ceasefire there now. So maybe just like um maybe just like good old uh, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, they'll get to the topic of the fighting in Israel uh, thirty five weeks later, and we can do an episode on it. But We have the U.S. falling back, which is enabling this new balance of power to come about in the region, and everyone was so worried about, oh, the power vacuum, oh, the power vacuum. The countries here can fill the vacuum themselves, just give them time, and here we have it. They are more than filling the vacuum. Iran, Syria, Russia, to an extent. Arabia Egypt has even stepped back in Turkey has stepped in The vacuum is being filled Almost immediately really So The Middle East has gone from this point of the world that you I just didn't want to even look at anymore to something that has genuinely intrigued me and I'll I guess I'll leave it there because I'm talking about the same thing But I'll use that to sort of segue into, let's look at what's going on everywhere else. We have this new balance of power in the Middle East, Iran's massive sphere of influence, and the eventual diplomatic isolation, the de facto diplomatic isolation of Israel. But we also have a spat between the EU and China. Uh, The Chinese holding all the cards, uh, revealing further how weak the EU is. Uh, Given that the EU can't really do anything about the Chinese sanctions on them. And that's probably what sort of sparked this call for um, uh, renewed trade relations between the two. Uh, The Chinese hold all the cards uh, with regards to the EU. And the EU can't do anything about it. So you can see with that instance, if nothing else... Why I call individual members of the EU major powers, but not the EU itself. It's kind of like the Holy Roman Empire, where it was always there since it it was established. But despite being the size of Germany, uh, and then some, it was never a great power. It was there. It was the largest entity, uh, aside from maybe Russia, but... It was never a great power. Countries within the Holy Roman Empire were great powers. Austria, Prussia, Bavaria, Bohemia. They were major powers, but somehow the HRE wasn't. And I think the EU is effectively a Europe-wide version of that, where in spite of its size, in spite of its population, in spite of all the individual member nations in, in it, and despite having literal great powers within it, The EU itself is not a great power. And we can see it. Things like this just make it very clear and apparent. Where China, by itself, is able to basically bully the EU. uh, And the EU can't do anything about it. And we kind of saw the same with the US uh, tariffs on EU goods. uh, Metal, steel, and aluminum uh, back in the early days of the Trump administration, and the EU couldn't really respond, uh, meaningfully to that. And so, we just get more and more glimpses of how weak the EU actually is as an institution, uh, which I'd imagine is the last thing the EU needs right now. Um, the EU's, the EU's in a really tough spot. They're in a really tough spot. Uh, they have secessionists in the west one of them being successful and that's britain they have people in open defiance of their authority in the east they have a separate political order aligning itself uh in the south that is centered around um the borders Uh, so in you have spain italy you have greece and I believe it was either Cyprus or Malta, but you have these countries in the south of the EU that are basically opting together, collectively opting to blatantly ignore the EU's laws regarding immigration uh, and the EU policy regarding migrants from Africa and Syria, Uh, to the point where you have the Spanish Border Patrol (laughs) throwing people off the ledge back into the the shallow waters just below the ledge and saying, yeah, you you can't come here. And Greece even put up a wall to stop migrants that were coming in from Turkey when Turkey basically let the floodgates open. You have these countries who are in blatant opposition to the EU's official policy. And the EU can't do anything to stop them. It can't police internally without the consent of the individual members so the eu that acts like a federal system is more and more being exposed to be confederal in actuality and in some ways even weaker as a central authority than that uh, when they get into spats with uh, actual foreign entities so the eu's in a rough spot and we'll see how things go with the individual members of the EU. You have countries like Greece threatening to extort them just to maintain their presence within the EU. So that's a whole Uno reverse card there, where it was like, Greece is dependent on us. No, 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 no. Well, maybe, maybe if you give us concessions, we'll stay. Suddenly you need us. And it's like, it's weird what the EU is becoming right before our very eyes. And it'll probably be even weirder when the institution is effectively non-existent, but no one wants to say it. That's going to be the weird part, I'd imagine. Um, Then there's the current Russian position. Now, Russia, uh, being a personal favorite to watch, uh, I've decided to talk about in this kind of overview of where the world is right now. Uh, And that's because they're kind of doing a lot. They're really... They're doing a lot and it grabs my attention very easily. They have this they have the Northeast Route, which is the water along their northern coastline in Siberia because the ice is getting um the ice is melted enough to where you can almost reliably send cargo through there. And that's sort of what they're building all these icebreakers for if I'm not mistaken. They're they have two and they have Eight in total that they are set to have in the near future. And they're going to use that to make themselves an alternative, a viable alternative to the Suez Canal. And the, the just another instance of global supply chains being shocked was when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. And you had all those boats that were just parked outside the canal because they couldn't get through. And now Russias are making themselves available as an alternative. Canada caught on a bit later, but they did. so kudos to Canada for remembering that they have the Northwest trade route, the the Northwest Passage, which is the same thing, except it's along Canada's northern coastline. And we'll see what the Americans do with regards to that because we do have Alaska up there. I don't know if uh, our leadership remembers that or if the leadership is even concerned about these trade routes sort of being shifted into new directions because this is going to be monumental. We're talking trillions of dollars of trade being redirected to three routes rather than choosing mainly to just go along one. And that's the Suez. We could benefit greatly from this shift if we're paying attention, it seems like we're not quite paying attention. But I'd imagine we will at some point. You, probably, maybe. Don't quote me. But um. So yeah, we have Russia basically leading the way in the diversification of the trade routes, and that in and of itself is a major point of con- has historically been a major point of contention between great powers. So we'll see how others respond to that. Um, mainly, given how you can't really intercept that because it's along Russia's coastline it's not like um, something you can just walk into and say hey you're going to go this way now because uh, that's really far out of the way <clears throat> All right. Like realistically you would need a massive navy to do that <clears throat> and currently there's the US and China who could Or maybe Norway is just going to do something wild. (laughs) But realistically, it's either going to be the U.S., China, France, or Britain who could, again, realistically do anything about trade going through the Northwest Passage. Well, the Northeast Passage. And, yeah, the Northwest Passage, too. Because it goes through the same bodies of water, particularly the U.S. with regards to the Northwest Passage. But... We'll have to see how that goes. So, they're rerouting trade routes. Then there's the conflict in Ukraine, where they're backing the rebels. Uh, The Ukraine uh, put up a massive army on the contact line, which is sort of where the demarcation is between the actual zones of control and jurisdiction. And then Russia mobilized hundreds of thousands of people, and the Ukrainians backed off very, very quickly. Um, As far as we know, the Russian troops are still in the general area. um, Because you wouldn't exactly just make them go back home after something like that. So, it'll probably take a few months before they're demobilized. But, you have this massive Russian response that has really exposed how, (laughs) for lack of a better term how garbage the Ukrainian position is right now, where you can't even retake your own territory, because the second you put your troops on the border with the rebels, the foreign sponsor, who is larger than you, puts their troops on your border and suddenly you have to back down. So, now I guess that just sort of outlines why I, and I'm pretty sure a lot of other people who are watching this conflict, believes it is a uh, straight-up unwinnable situation for Ukraine. There is there is no winning that situation. You can't join NATO. If they did that, Russia would literally Russia would step in and invade them. Like, wholesale. I don't imagine the Russians would tolerate NATO having control of the Ukraine. They were pretty angry and upset over NATO getting the Baltic states. So... Uh, Ukraine even attempting, uh, or I guess even being this close to formalizing a NATO alliance uh, would set off alarm bells, as it has, so you can imagine what actually being a part of NATO would mean for Ukraine within the first five seconds of signing the ink on that paper that says you are now a part of NATO. Uh, the Ukraine would cease to exist, is what would happen, which is why they can't, and which is why the people in the Western governments who are a part of NATO, who advocate for the Ukraine to be a part of NATO, um, aren't so keen on rushing them into the alliance. So, which I guess is one of the one of the smarter moves they've made in the past few decades. So there's that. Ukraine is in an unwinnable situation and I expect eventually uh, either the republics break away and get extra territory as compensation um, or the conflict spills out into something bigger than the shelling we've seen occasionally uh, during this so-called ceasefire. We might see Ukraine do a, a Hail Mary. If they really, really just start to get desperate, they might just just go for it. Because they're going to lose either way. If they sit here and let their troops get attritioned and worn down, they won't have an army. If Russia decides, for whatever reason, that they're just going to step in, they're going to lose. If they keep trying to bash their heads against the contact line, they're going to lose. Because the Russians are backing the rebels they're in this if they back away they lose because that would threaten the legitimacy of the government and open the door to yet more secession to which the Russians and the breakaway provinces of the Donbass would be more than happy to back up with yet more Russian troops and equipment so they're screwed Ukraine is literally screwed they have no way of winning this the only options they have of winning it uh, will get them killed. Joining NATO, you're dead. Uh, going for a Hail Mary assault to take back the provinces with all the equipment you still have, you're dead. Because now the Russians step in. Uh, you know, in a formal manner, where they actually put their army into your country. You join NATO, Russia steps in and you die. You back away. You die internally because you you, you are not legitimate anymore. If You you lose. Now the Russians are even more on your border. You think the Lugansk and Donbass, Lugansk and Donetsk are going to be little, you think they're not going to be little troublemakers on your border? No. <laughs> they're going to be big troublemakers. Except they're going to have the Russians backing them, so you can't do anything about them being troublemakers on your border. They lose. Ukraine is literally in the most unwinnable position I have seen in my lifetime. The U.S. had a better chance of winning the war on terror than they do of winning their own civil war. And that says everything that needs to be said. Then you have Russia improving uh, their relations with China. So shoring up the flank, the big one... In the East. uh, Even shoring up relations with countries beyond their periphery. Like Iran. um, And Turkey to an extent. So that's China, Iran, Turkey. Afghanistan being the missing link. But they even have uh, somewhat good relations with Japan. So you have all these countries who. If we were talking Soviet Union borders or. Uh, Russian Empire borders would be neighbors of Russia, but are currently not neighbors except for uh, Japan and China But now that Russia has control over the Caucasus um, We could see them move in somewhere There's been fighting between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan Who both are part of Russia's military alliance and both already have Russian troops stationed there so if more fighting breaks out between those two, it is almost guaranteed that the Russians will step in because they're already there. That fighting there would threaten their logistics and their ability to support their troops that are there. So they would let it. They would let the two sides fight it out like they did with Armenia and Azerbaijan, and then they'd step in. And at that point, they would be welcomed by both sides of the par- of the, the mess like they were in the Caucasus. It's a brilliant move. Uh, it makes everyone happy. At least for the time being, it makes everyone happy. Uh, unless you're Georgia, in which case it was a straight-up war with you and Russia, to which you were always going to lose. But we could see the, a repeat happen in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan which would be Russia moving into Central Asia and giving them a really good anchoring position uh, because they can move through Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is also a part of Russia's military alliance, the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which only leaves Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Uh, But that still means vast swaths of Eurasia uh, would uh, in essence be... ...in Russia's direct sphere of influence, militarily speaking. To which, what's two more? Uh, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. So, I see them either moving into Ukraine or moving into Central Asia. And these are event-based scenarios where something has to happen to which the Russians will respond. Um, Russia taking direct action is, uh, at this point, we can observe as a last resort... So, but Russia taking advantage of something else that's already happening is a reliable uh, guess as to what they'll do. So we keep our eyes on Russia's neighborhood because it can open the door for Russia to walk in. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's the Russian position, and it's a pretty good position if you're Russia. You're making steady progress on what effectively reassimilating. Uh, former provinces of yours, and the said former provinces are largely happy that you're doing so. Of course, there's the Ukraine, but the Ukraine can't win anyway. So, what's the point in caring what they think? That's the Russian position, a very interesting one uh, that gets more interesting by the day, especially as they deepen ties with China. Meanwhile, you have the Libya. <clears throat> Excuse me, you have Libya. The situation there, where they too were in a civil war. Technically a part of the Middle East, but on the far fringes. Uh, outside of Iran's sphere of influence, but well within Turkey's. Now, they are currently making a unity government. Um, the success of which will remain to be seen. Because uh, they have an election. They have, Right now, they have an interim government. Uh, and then they're going to have an election in, right before Christmas... Of this year now I thought it was going to be last year but it's this year apparently that they're going to hold this election and I brought up that there are militias large militias in highly populated centers in the country who are already saying that they're not just not going to accept the results of that election so when you have factions like that who are militant by nature already saying yeah that we're not abiding by that Uh, I'd imagine so long as their guy doesn't win Then what what can you expect really from? whatever the new government is and Even if it does succeed there's the possibility that it leaves the door open for outsized influence from the previous government that is uh, the current Libyan government right now which would mean opening the door for Turkey to stay involved in the region And Who knows where that'll go? But my guess is that this unity government is going to fail Just due to the forces in play that we can observe Now granted the forces in play did agree to uh, This unity government in the first place. So there is a desire for unification and unity and an end to the war Just great disagreement on Who wins in this war? And that includes um, whether or not the unity government equals you winning or not. So, if you say, think that the unity government means someone else winning the war, well, you're not going to like the liberty You're not going to like that government at all. You're going to fight it. You're going to fight it. And that's Libya opening the door for intervention from countries like France, Turkey, Italy, maybe. But Italy benefits uh, regardless. I know Libya and Turkey have that shared mutual exclusive zone. But um, with regards to any pipelines that go through the region, they ultimately go through Italy regardless of which one you choose or which one gets built. So Italy has no reason to intervene here at all. It'll be France and Turkey. That's what I see being the main competitors in the eastern Mediterranean Then you have Ethiopia and their situation with Tigray, where they're still fighting with the rebels and there's still tensions with them and Egypt over the Renaissance Dam which, when it's finished, is going to rob Egypt of a whole lot of water from the Nile, the main artery of the country. And that's not going to end well. Whether that's Egypt, uh, taking it like a champ and watching millions of people, uh, suffer due to lack of water and being put out of a job because they're agrarian workers, or if it means Egypt going on the warpath and marching through Sudan or sending an airstrike through Sudan, uh, through Sudan's airspace to hit the dam, to which that would be an act of war, succeed or fail, and... Well, suddenly, two regional powers would be at war, which could be exploited by other members in the region, like a new Libyan government, Turkey, France, potentially Israel, we'll have to see where they go, and Arabia, and maybe even Iran, if they back the right candidate in the war again, which I guess would be Ethiopia, that, that'd be the safe bet. Uh, manpower wise it'd be Egypt, but Ethiopia is in the mountains, so manpower doesn't mean all that much there And they'd be marching through Sudan So Sudan would probably either try to main, remain neutral or they'd side with the Ethiopians Because they were gonna get a free energy from that dam. Well, not free. They'd get cheap energy So sabotaging the dam is a sabotage of Sudan's national interest So that would make Egypt the enemy. They'd be fighting two countries for the price of one and I don't think they're gonna pull out of that tailspin without some major foreign assistance, like say, Turkish foreign assistance. You know, Egypt, Egypt did used to be a part of that Ottoman Empire, didn't they? Yeah, maybe they should. Maybe you should come back into the fold, and then maybe we'll back you up in this war that you can't win. Hmm. Maybe we'll send our troops there, make sure you're safe. New Ottoman Empire? Potentially. Conflicts tend to break down uh, the ability of countries to enforce their borders, uh, particularly when they're losing or when they need all their strength to fight on a single front. So, we could see something go down. See something go down. I'll always bring that up with that dam. We could always see something go down. And I'd imagine the Tigray rebels could be utilized as a as a uh, a really nice thorn in Ethiopia's side uh, on the part of anyone who's in conflict with Ethiopia. Maybe even Iran. Maybe they don't necessarily feel they can win. But if they back themselves on Egypt's side in that conflict, you could throw some money their way. They could do some damage. They could do some damage. Although Africa as a whole... Despite a massive militancy problem, which is inviting former colonial powers back into the region, namely France, Portugal, and Turkey, uh, all in different corners of the continent, interestingly enough. You have France in the west, uh, you have Turkey in the northeast, and Portugal in the south. So, we could see something go down there, and then there's China coming in through the, the east with their growing influence with regards to trade and Chinese businesses in these countries as an extended version of the Belt and Road Initiative. So we have four potentially colonial powers here, three of which having already been colonial powers in Africa, but China being the newcomer here, out of the necessity of their economic structure. But... While we could be seeing a potential for those four countries and maybe more in the future to be competing over who controls what in Africa, at some point, um, it is interesting to note. But it's also uh, important to mention that Africa as a whole does have a moderately bright future, as they've they've established a continent-wide free trade deal. So. We could see them on the rise as they a lot of them have been As you know developing countries who are being allowed to develop for the most part We just take a look at Ethiopia and that dam that they're building. That's a development if I've ever seen it the, Then there's the East African Federation, which is a potential challenger should it become a a, a Properly established thing. It's gonna take some time to establish itself it could become a potential challenger to Ethiopian preeminence in East Africa. And it'll have China as a backer. That's what I believe. Uh, well, China may just play neutral in these two sides. But we could be seeing a new shakeup in the Eastern African region, uh, particularly while Ethiopia is busy with their civil war and busy with the fallout from building a dam that's going to hurt Egypt. And that's going to give the Federation, this East African Federation, the time to sort of come into its own. Maybe. We'll have to see. Of course, there's also the Cold War in Asia, but things have kind of gotten quiet over there for a little bit. But I guess, kind of on the topic of that Cold War, we have some bonus speculation on Indonesia. Because... Indonesia uh, Has some things going down internally that I think could Spell something major, and I'll talk about that in just a minute Alright now we'll get into a bit of a bonus speculation part of the episode and That is sort of the massive potential. I see in Indonesia as being the Japan 2.0 now recently Indonesia and this is kind of the story that caught my attention and drew me to Indonesia to talk about it, Uh, recently they deployed 400 additional troops to the Papua region. Uh, Indonesia is a long chain of islands just north of Australia, and Papua is the largest island in the easternmost edges of that island chain. So they've deployed these troops there, in addition to the thousands that they already have there. Uh, And that's in order to quell a lengthy armed rebellion in the region after militants there reportedly destroyed schools, health clinics, and killed a high-ranking intelligence official. Uh, Their stated goal being, the stated goal of the Indonesians to, to, quote, wipe out those behind these terrible acts of violence, end quote. And that's according to the local head of police intelligence. He went even further in saying that this operation will go until we get the maximum result. As long as they have not been arrested, we will do our utmost to incapacitate them and catch them. That's the quote. Uh, Now, these separatists, uh, the largest faction of which being the Free Papua Organization, justified their attacks... And profess their belief that they will ultimately win this conflict and gain independence uh, That was promised to them by the Netherlands the Netherlands being the former colonial master of the region. Uh, It was called the Dutch East Indies back then Uh, So these separatists believe that they're gonna get their independence and that they'll win the conflict in the end Now it is worth mentioning here that the terrain that the fighting is taking place on is hilly mountainous and covered in jungle. Now there's a reason these separatists have been able to hold out as long as they have Uh, So this is likely to go on for a while even with the extra troops Um, So that's kind of the story that caught my attention and drew me to Indonesia and while I'll definitely be keeping my eyes on the broader region of Southeast Asia Uh, this story got me thinking about Indonesia who just a couple hours before I read it I was also thinking about uh, namely I was thinking about what would happen if they took control of the entire island chain uh, the entire island chain that Indonesia is situated upon this would mean either the integration or the subjugation of Malaysia, Brunei and Papua New Guinea. Now, such a greater Indonesia would no longer have any land borders to deal with, enabling them to focus heavily on their navy and air forces, more heavily than they could even now, being a primarily island-based nation, and the necessity for being able to move around within your own country. Uh, And this country, this greater Indonesia, would have a combined population of 270 million from Indonesia, 32 million from Malaysia, 430,000 from Brunei, and 8.7 million from Papua New Guinea, which, uh, not to be confused with the Papua region within Malaysia, well, not within Indonesia itself. It's the other half of that island. Uh, And together, this would equal a 309 million strong population, which, for reference, is just 19 million short of the total U.S. population. Uh, Now, such a super state would be the fourth most populous country on the planet, meaning it would have a sizable consumer market, making them both an enticing trade partner, because you'd want to get access to that to that market, that consumer market, and that consumer market also being capable of driving domestic consumption-led growth. You could sell your products that you produce to your own people, which creates a degree of self-sufficiency and a degree of independence rather than dependence uh, on foreign powers. Now I know, uh, and I learned this uh, a while back, that Java, the island where indonesia's capital is uh the island there is the most populous island in the world half of those 270 million people living in indonesia live on this island specifically Um, so you can imagine that that's created a bit of an overpopulation problem there to the point where some of their cities some of the buildings in their cities are sinking there's just so many people there and the land underneath just isn't stable enough to support the population. So, what you have is this this, this pressure. This immense pressure that's pushing the Havanese, the people on this island, to migrate uh, to the larger yet less populated islands within the country. Uh, so... Uh, it's, very, it's a very similar phenomenon to what happened with the Europeans and their colonies in the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, where you have m- these populations in Europe migrating outwards towards land that was technically theirs uh, by way of colonization. So you'd have them moving what technically internally but really was externally. They were moving out of Europe to overseas to the colonies... Uh, And what we have here in Indonesia is sort of a very similar phenomenon. And as such, we could be witnessing an internal colonization, a real internal colonization. So I guess the better comparison would be the United States, where we moved west across the continent. Um, So that was a bit of an internal colonization. Uh, But you have this here uh, with the Indonesian Isles. And it may lead to the Havanese settlers um, establishing an ethnic dominance over the other islands there which would create a more coherent uh, country as people who are of the same are more likely to adhere to a government that is uh, run by people who are basically of the same ethnic group as them Uh, take that as take that for what you will but the ethnic backlash to this will also be something to look out for, as the people who live on these other islands, who, despite being a part of Indonesia, uh may not necessarily like suddenly having to deal with all these people from this one island, sure they're part of, sure we're the same nationality, but that doesn't mean I want a whole bunch of people like you coming over and changing my way of life, so even though they're the same even though they're big countrymen and they're yes we're both indonesian you could see ethnic tensions within indonesia as the havanese are moving out of these islands and they really start to get settled on these larger islands coming into conflict with the lifestyles uh, of the people living there even if that's just through the competition of jobs in these islands and food and resources now granted Credit what credit's due, Indonesia is doing a pretty good job of not pissing off its many different ethnic groups, so perhaps the ethnic tensions will be uh, more something akin to what America went through. Every time we'd have a massive wave of people coming from outside, like Greece, uh, Italy, uh, I- Ireland, Poland, every time we'd get a massive wave of immigrants, they'd go through this rough patch and then eventually get assimilated. We could see something like that with Indonesia, uh, although that'll, it'll remain to be seen, it'll remain to be seen, I'll say that. But nevertheless, the the very intriguing internal affairs that would go down in this greater Indonesia, and really just Indonesia in general, nevertheless, such a unification would make Indonesia, greater Indonesia, a major player in the region, and that's before they did anything. And given Indonesia is a major net importer of energy, they would also become heavily involved in the territorial disputes over the South China Sea, effectively um, adopting the territorial claims of Brunei and Malaysia, uh, basically basically making them an actual player who's invested in the region. So... They would be interested in the energy resources there, putting them into direct competition with China, who now has the largest navy in the Pacific, which, given the island nature of Indonesia, would prompt the Indonesians, and even a greater Indonesia, to build a powerful navy just to prevent the Chinese from cutting them off from their own islands, making them a great sea-based major power. Uh, it would also, the existence of a greater Indonesia, would basically allow sea-based energy imports to, well, they'd be safe for Indonesia, because they have islands that are beyond the Malacca Strait. Uh, that being literally every island in Indonesia, uh, particularly the ones to the, on the southern rim of the country. That would allow them to use those islands as ports for energy access that would come from, namely, the Middle East. Whereas China would rely either on land-based routes, like they're building now, or for the energy to come through the Straits of Malacca. Um, So that would be a major point of contention between the two. And this would, number one, be because this Greater Indonesia would own half of the strait, as they do now with just regular Indonesia, but they'd also have Malaysia and Brunei added on top of that. And number two, the Indonesians can, due to the geography of their country, go around the straits. They can just go around their own islands and bypass the straits altogether. So it's a geopolitical choke point that they would control, but not be subject to. Uh, and they'd be able to access Mid Eastern energy resources. Uh, that being said, their conflict, uh, the conflicting claims they would have with China in the South China Sea would serve to put this greater Indonesia into alignment with Japan and India, which would really shake things up in the Cold War. Maybe even making them the major power to look out for rather than India. Now, that'd be something. That'd be something. You'd have two naval powers and a land power. So. But that's speculation. But we we know speculation is the fun part here. Uh, Geopolitics is a very, very fun thing to speculate on, which is why alternate history is so fun. But that being said, that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's extended broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, High Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.